Wake up, it's the Saturday Morning Podcast. Let mom and dad sleep in and come back with me to the 1980s. Let's grab a bowl of Corn Bran or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and flip on the tube. I've got the TV guide and hours of nothing to do. My name is Chris and I love all the Saturday morning cartoons. When I was a kid, I lived for Saturday mornings. Now that I'm an adult, I want to relive all those great shows and see how they came about. Let's take a deep dive back to the 80s and see what's waiting. Rewind! Let's play a game. I'm going to handcuff you with day-low restraints and you're going to lose all control of your body. And while you're in the coma I induced, I promise not to do anything to you. And I'm also going to hide you from people so no one knows you exist. Sounds super fun, right? Nothing creepy about this at all. Still on board? Believe it or not, that was the premise of a kid show. Because kids love handcuffs and keeping secrets. Was this Fifty Shades of Saturday Morning? Let's take a deep dive into the not-so-pervy version of this idea as we explore My Pet Monster. having lots of fun in his own monster way. He loves to munch on garbage. He'll even eat the can. If this sounds gross, please understand. He's my best friend. My pet monster. My very, very bestest friend. My pet monster. A monster of a friend. A monster In the fall of 1987, ABC decided they needed more monsters. The real Ghostbusters were doing just fine catching the supernatural around a cartoon version of New York. So the thought must have been, what if we domesticated the monsters and gave them to a responsible 11-year-old? Because 11-year-olds are renowned for being responsible. The story of a boy and his monster was starting to take off in the 80s. The formula worked successfully in Gremlins and as a relationship device in the Goonies, between Sloth and Chunk. By the end of the me decade, the movie Little Monsters also thought the boy-monster bond was a special one. ABC had partnered with American Greetings the season before on the new show The Care Bears. They had been a hit, so My Pet Monster was added to the schedule as a Care Bears for boys. Not that boys couldn't watch the Care Bears. Tenderheart Lion forever! ABC must have had a lot of faith in My Pet Monster because they slotted this freshman show at 8.30. That meant two things. One, it would be the second show of Saturday morning to air right behind the Care Bears. Two, 8.30 put My Pet Monster in direct competition with Muppet Babies on CBS and the Smurfs on NBC. Both of those shows were powerhouses in their time slots. 
But in fact, CBS and NBC had put those two shows in the same time slot since 1984. Whatever ABC aired against them didn't stand a chance. In 1984, ABC had Mighty Orbots, which was a one and done. In 1985, ABC put the power of Star Wars up against the Belgian Blues and the Henson Muppets with Ewoks. At the start of the 1986 season, Ewoks was kicked up the schedule to 11.30, getting it out of firing range. Also for the 1986 season, the 9am time slot was filled with an hour of the Flintstone Kids. It was an attempt to revive the classic Stone Age family in the form of baby fiction. They turned the clock back on Fred, Wilma, and the rest, making them as young as the viewers. You know, like Muppet Babies did. Not even the dinosaur might of the Flintstones could topple the grip of the Muppets and the Smurfs. It must have been frustrating for ABC, who appeared to be doing whatever it could to knock down the competition. Going into 1987, Muppet Babies and the Smurfs were expanded into a 90-minute block. They were also moved 30 minutes ahead to the 8.30 slot. Muppet Babies were going into their fourth year, and the Smurfs were entering into Season 7. Common Sense would have told most viewers that the Smurfs must be on their way out. The average lifespan of a cartoon on Saturday morning was about two, maybe three seasons. At seven years old, it was likely thought this would be the last season of the Smurfs. As most know, the Smurfs would last a whopping nine years, ending with the decade. Muppet Babies crossed into the 90s and ended at the end of season eight. All the networks were looking for their own Smurfs-like success, including CBS and NBC, who were likely trying to find replacements for their own aging shows. ABC's response to the 90-minute block was to put their new shows against the competition. My Pet Monster led into The Little Clowns of Happy Town, followed by Little Wizards. The network was hoping one of these shows would perform better than all the rest, and best, Henson and Peo. While that was the plan, history will show that the best laid plans of Max and Monster often go awry by Smurfs and Muppets. My Pet Monster revolved around 11-year-old Max and his pet monster, named Monster. The adults thought Monster was just a stuffed animal. The secret was kept by Max, his sister Jill, and best friend Chucky. Mr. Hinkle, the next-door neighbor, was a busybody who tried to find out what Max was up to. He suspected much, but never found the truth. Beaster is another monster and hails from Monsterland. His assignment is to track down Monster and take him back home. He's got a sensitivity to bright light and shrinks when handcuffed. Monster himself came with a pair of orange handcuffs that, when worn, turn him into a stuffed animal. The story of My Pet Monster is very similar to the story of the Care Bears. Both shows were from American Greetings, a card company with the desire to diversify into other fields. They collaborated with Kenner Toys, the keeper of the Star Wars action figure Flame, and the two companies created plush toys. While the Care Bears were a hit with kids, girls seemed to gravitate towards them the most. American Greetings wanted to capture the same market for boys. And what boy in the 80s didn't love monsters? Horror movies were all the rage and easy to access given the rise of VHS, cable, and having a parent that just wasn't paying attention. 
American Greetings turned to a smaller division within their own company. Jack Wynonski and Ralph Schaefer were the co-presidents of a division called Those Characters from Cleveland and had been responsible for creating Strawberry Shortcake and developing the Care Bears into a hit. Surely they could do it again. What worked for the Care Bears was the use of bright colors. It's reasonable to assume that they would use the same tactic with My Pet Monster. The doll is an eye-catching blue with bright orange handcuffs. While the Care Bears were cute, these things had to be disgusting and far from cuddly. They were given fangs, horns, and warty noses. Once the prototypes were approved, they were put into production. Just like the Care Bears, it was decided a movie would help to promote the brand and explore the origin of the monsters. The task of figuring this out went to J.D. Smith, Dan, to his friends. The writer started out life as an animator and storyboard artist, working on projects like The Get-Along Gang, both Care Bears movies, and a Strawberry Shortcake special. He would write a handful of Care Bears episodes in 1986, likely around the time he was handed My Pet Monster to figure out. What Smith created was a mythology for the monster. The story for the direct-to-video movie revolved around a monster-like statue that had been brought to a museum. Brother and sister Max and Melanie check out the museum and Max gets infected by the statue and becomes the monster. After a transformation, Max goes on the lam as the monster, leaving Dr. Snyder and Melanie having to find him. It was essentially a pilot for a TV show that never materialized. The ending was supposed to be a segue to a second part, which would likely have been the first episode of a live-action series. The film starred Sonny Beeson Thrasher as Max and Allison Court as Sister Melanie. Both would go on to the cartoon, with Melanie's name being changed to Jill. Actor Colin Fox played Dr. Snyder from the museum and would come to the show as nosy neighbor Mr. Hinkle. By the time the movie was being shipped on VHS, the plush toys were proving to be a hit in toy stores. The My Pet Monster live-action show was not picked up, but that didn't stop American Greetings from trying again. The key to Saturday morning was cartoons. It worked for the Care Bears because it had to. I don't think any of us want to imagine a live-action Care Bears movie with the limited character tools of the 1980s. Writer Peter Sauter was given the responsibility of developing the concept of My Pet Monster for Saturday morning. Sauter was head writer on Inspector Gadget and wrote for the Edison Twins. He had also penned the Care Bears movie for American Greetings, as well as the Strawberry Shortcake TV show. In 1985, he wrote nine episodes of Star Wars Droids for Nelvana. Sauter was on a roll, and it made sense to involve him in what was poised to be the Care Bears for boys. Sauter changed the backstory. Max no longer had the ability to change into the monster. Monster himself would be a separate character. There was no Dr. Snyder from the museum, but there was neighbor Mr. Hinkle who suspected Max of wrongdoing. The cartoon introduced Beaster, who is charged with bringing Monster back to Monsterland. It is likely that ABC greenlighted this project given the popularity of the plush toys. While a show was supposed to create awareness of the toy, it worked the opposite way in this case. The toys had been on the shelves for a year by the time the first animated episode aired. 
The plush toys would remind young viewers to tune in Saturday mornings to catch the adventures of their favorite monster. The show is produced by Ellipse Studios in France, Nelvana in Canada, and High Tops Video in association with Golden Books. All of those studios were partnering with American Greetings, the mastermind behind the property. With a reworked concept being given the thumbs up, all that was left to do was assemble the perfect cast. Sonny Beeson Thrasher was born December 13, 1976 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. His mother, Joan, was a songwriter and keyboardist for the rock group Prairie Oyster. His father, David, was a storyboard artist and animator for productions like Intergalactic Thanksgiving and the Care Bears movie. Like many Canadian actors, Sonny started his career on the Edison Twins playing Paul. He entered into voice work on the Care Bears movie and Care Bears 2 A New Generation. In 1986, he played Max in the live-action, direct-to-video movie My Pet Monster. When that special transitioned to a Saturday morning cartoon, Thrasher resumed his role as Max. At the same time he was on My Pet Monster, he also voiced Reggie on the new Archies. Stuart Eisenstein was born November 17, 1980, in Thornhill, Ontario, Canada. His parents ran a store that sold hockey and baseball cards. Young Stuart started his career at the age of two in a commercial selling ham for Maple Leaf Foods and Canadian staple Kraft Dinner. Perhaps it was around this time that more work came calling and he changed his name to Stuart Stone. In 1984, he made his big-screen debut in the film Heavenly Bodies. On the small screen, he guest-starred on The Edison Twins. His first voice role came in 1987 when he was cast as Chucky on My Pet Monster. Allison Court was born in 1973 in Ontario, Canada. She started acting in 1984 on the Canadian kids' show Mr. Dress Up. In 1985, she appeared in the Sesame Street feature film, Follow That Bird. From there, Court lent her voice to the Care Bears and Star Wars Ewoks. It was around that time she landed the role of Terry Cloth on the Garbage Pail Kids and pulled double duty on My Pet Monster as Jill. Jeff McGibbon's acting career started with My Pet Monster playing Monster. From there, he would go on to guest star on the Mr. T series, TNT, as a character named Morris, also referred to as Monster. He provided additional voices on the 1988 series, Babar, and would then appear in the 1990 TV movie, Clarence. At that point, his acting career ends. Wherever he is, we wish him well. Dan Hennessy was born in August of 1941 in Toronto, Canada. He started his acting career in 1973 in two wildly different projects. He was a cast member on the TV show Music Machine. That same year, he played Claudius, King of Denmark, in a production of Hamlet. He made three live-action appearances as Stanley on the fondly-remembered series The Littlest Hobo. In 1983, he played Chief Quimby, the exasperated boss on Inspector Gadget. He landed the role of Braveheart Lion in the 1985 Care Bears movie and would play Loyal Heart Dog on the TV show. 
Like many Canadian actors of the time, he provided voices for the Star Wars series, Ewoks, and Droids. In 1987, he landed the role of Beaster, the monstrous villain on My Pet Monster. Colin Fox was born November 20, 1938 in Aldershot, Ontario, Canada. He attended the National Theatre School of Canada and graduated in 1965. Four years later, he made his debut in the Three Musketeers TV movie. He gained a reputation for playing ruthless villains and found work because of it. In 1986, he married Carol Birmingham and the couple would have a daughter. The very next year, Fox entered into voice work when he was cast as the Wizard in the Care Bears Adventure in Wonderland. At the same time, he played Mr. Hinkle, the nosy neighbor on My Pet Monster. After these messages, we'll be right back with the premiere of My Pet Monster. Captain O.G. Remore here. Do you feel bored and restless, like nothing's going right? I guarantee that reading books can help you change your life, learn how to make and do things. Oh, look at that. Learn interesting new things. Oh, I didn't know that. Find adventure and excitement. Things to feel and things to be. Oh, yes, a book can really change your life. Just read a book. <laughs> You'll see. Take it easy in that slate board, Freddy. Be careful. You too, Dad. Don't forget to sing a song of seatbelt safety. Huh? Oh, yeah. The seatbelt connected to the frame zone. The lap strap goes across the hip bone. The shoulder strap angles or the chest bone. So hear the words of the law. Those belts, those bones, those seatbelts. For safety's sake, wear seatbelts. I'll properly wear seatbelts and heed the words of the law. Sometimes kids have to remind grown-ups. Yabba dabba buckle up. This is ABC. If you watched the premiere of My Pet Monster, the date was September 12, 1987. The number four song on the American charts was Here I Go Again by Whitesnake. The number one album on the charts was the La Bamba soundtrack by Los Lobos. The Nation was reading Spy Catcher by Peter Wright with Paul Greengrass, the number one nonfiction book in the country. Pee-wee Herman was on the cover of Mad Magazine, issue 273, with Alfred E. Newman as his mirror image. Other features in that issue included spoofs of Crocodile Dundee, Amen, and Baseball. The retail price was $1.35. Cheap. On ABC, the other shows that premiered that day were The Little Clowns of Happy Town and Little Wizards. If you were a kid in 1987, maybe you got up early and got yourself breakfast. Maybe you had a new cereal, like a bowl of Quaker Oat Squares or Fruity Marshmallow Krispies. The theme song starts with some shadows and groans, and then changes to hairy thumbs snapping. For a split second, I think this could be the Addams Family. And then we see the monster that will be my pet, and I realize what this is. 
The title card has a background that's so 80s, it's a stereotype. The cadence of the theme song sounds a lot like some other theme song, but I can't place it. Wait, I can, I totally can. It's the Smurfs theme song. Take out the lyrics and just sing la la la, you'll see. The song sings about how scary this monster is, but he just seems ugly adorable. Maybe Ugadorbs? My favorite is when Max and Chucky run past the movie theater and we get to see all the fake movie posters. I always want things like that to be real just because they're so absurd. Who wouldn't want to see the fish that couldn't swim or the revenge of Phil? I guess that would depend on which Phil. Collins? Donahue? Punxsutawney? Did that turn into Groundhog Day? The last poster is for Beaster, which turns out to be the real Beaster posing and waiting. He goes for the jump scare and chase the kids out of frame. The song tells us that monster eats anything, even tin cans. Sounds like our garbage could sustain a world of monsters who could help us to clean up. That means monster goes from ecological hazard to ecological equalizer. Max and Monster run across the title screen, again, and Beaster tries to follow, but looks confused. Max sings something of an off-pitch note, which shatters the scene and rains rubble on Beaster. Max and Monster high-five, and we cut to the episode title. Goodbye Cuffs, Goodbye Monster is a strange title. Just for the kink factor alone, I don't think kid shows should ever have handcuff references. It's like saying clamp and then trying not to think of nipples. I mean, I hear that's the case. I don't know. I'm not one of those pervs or, uh, I'm innocent. So back to the kids show, you know, with the handcuffs. The show starts with a pan over shot of the neighborhood and we push in on Max's house. There's a great looking treehouse in the backyard. You know, Max is a lucky kid. I never had a treehouse. The closest I ever got was going into a shed that was overgrown with ivy, and wandering the alley behind my parents' apartment. In Max's room, Monster is practicing being scary in front of a light, so his shadow is all huge. The room has all the boy stuff a boy's room should have in the 80s. Gittle Blaster? Check. Movie posters? I see one for mutant roaches and the bug. Wes Craven definitely should have made one of those. When the door opens, Monster hides in the closet. Max pops into the room with a zapper and says no monster is going to hide from him and Chucky. I guess that's the fake out where we think Monster's really a monster, and the poor man's Monster Busters is who we're going to call. But the theme song tells us that Max and Monster are friends. So this psych out is a psych out of a psych out. Monster launches out of the closet and tackles Max to the bed, and a tickle fight ensues. Just like in a sorority, you can always tell which shows are hardcore monster shows by the amount of tickle fights. Sister Jill opens the door and Monster is on her like drunk college guys at a kager. Monster kisses Jill and she says she loves him too. If this were made today, Jill would call the authorities to turn in Monster as part of the Me Too movement. Or at the very least, name the monster Harvey. Or Kevin? Turns out the gun that Max was toting was a prototype of a weapon to shoot Beaster back to Monsterland. Sounds like an important plot point, I mean tool, in the story. Jill asks Max to put out the garbage and the boy says not to say the G word. I guess that would tickle Monster's G spot. Monster goes into a garbage tizzy at the sound of the word, like my kids when I say candy. Monster has visions of the garbage truck and sticks his head out the window to check out the garbage cans. 
He calls it breakfast and rushes out the window. The kids are worried about their neighbor, Mr. Hinkle, seeing the monster. Turns out Hinkle's a real spatherdab and he would likely report a monster if he saw one. The trash guys are coming around to pick up the garbage and monster pops out of Hinkle's trash can. The trash man sees monster, but apparently he's not a threat like Mr. Hinkle. A poodle scares the trash man away, so that scene was pointless. Hinkle goes after his poodle, Princess, and she trips him in the tar he was going to use on the driveway. Is that a regular thing? People retarring their driveways? Kind of a weird detail to put in a cartoon just so a character can get sticky in some sticky stuff. Worried that Hinkle will see Monster, Max slaps the titular cuffs on Monster's wrist. It turns him into a stuffed animal. That means these restraints make the craziest monster docile and immobile. Huh. And are we to believe they aren't supposed to be some weird sex thing? Hinkle gets a bucket of tar to the face, trips around his backyard, and comes out of the bushes in blackface. That's no comment, it just happened, and now we'll move past it. Chucky says black looks good on Mr. Hinkle. Shut up, Chucky, that's not being woke! Determined to show that Max has been hiding something, Hinkle digs through his trash cans until he takes out Monster. And then he's appalled by the mess he just made. Mr. Hinkle tries to blame Max for the mess. No one forced him to unload his trash bin for no reason. Jill takes Hinkle away and says that Max will clean up the mess. Max shows Chucky the key he keeps around his neck. It starts to magically float towards Monster's cuffs, like picking a lock gives it a boner. Max doesn't say it, but I'm certain the key also unlocks Jill's diary, where she writes down all her monster fantasies. I'd wager she writes about BMC. The key unshackles Monster, who comes back to the land of the living. When he's in the cuff coma, does he know what's happening? Does he have a memory of it? Does he just go catatonic like the patients in Awakenings? I wish the magic of those cuffs could be explained by Robin Williams. Max gets Monster to clean up the yard while the boys look on. So they're trying to hide Monster from Mr. Hinkle, but no one else in the neighborhood sees this happening. But can no one else in the neighborhood see this happening? Is no one else a threat? The scene cuts to a questionable movie theater. The marquee says they're showing Curse of the Slime People. That I'm okay with. But the windows on the second story are boarded up. What's the backstory here? A cinema paradiso fire? Or is it blocking the outside world from seeing in because they used to show pervy movies? Looks like the theater that used to hold the trench coat convention. I'm told. Turns out the whole theater is boarded up and it's being used by Beaster as an entry point into our universe. No one could figure out a great introduction for this character. He just comes through his light portal, mugs at the camera, and says, I am Beaster. Roll that maniacal laughter. A mouse stumbles on the switches and turns on all the lights. Then that's how we find that Beaster is sensitive to light. If you can't get him wet or feed him after midnight, I'm going to suspect a ripoff. Beaster stumbles around blinded and manages to rip down the ornate curtains. And where you think there'd be a movie screen, there's just a brick wall that's falling apart. Guest management took the reflective screen when the theater folded. But I'm confused when sandbags fall. Is this a theatrical theater? Like for live stage plays? Is this role telling me that there's a stage play called Curse of the Slime People? Screw you, show! Not even Andrew Lloyd's Show Me the Money Weber would sink that low. And yet, strangely, I would go to that show. 
At Max's treehouse, Max lectures his pet monster to keep a low profile so Mr. Hinkle won't take him to the pound. And the treehouse is adorned in movie posters as well. David Fincher, please make Black Knight white teeth. I will pay you hundred of dollar to do it. Hopefully that would lead to Edgar Wright making the gross thing. Chucky's modified the Beaster gun and it turns out to be a really bright flashlight. When Max tries it, it melts the batteries. Chucky decides it's time for a baseball break. Monster goes nuts to play ball and they all slide down the stripper pole to go play. The trio find themselves at a baseball diamond in what looks like the backyard of a mansion. This is where they find out Bo Jackson lives there and he threatens to expose the secret of their monster. I would have loved to have seen a celebrity cameo as himself with Bo Jackson playing a bad guy. We could have found out that Bo knows monsters. As Chucky pitches and monster bats, Max takes to the outfield covering everything else. We see the mansion is all boarded up just like the movie theater. Is this town dying? Were they the victim of a recession? Was this the theater manager's house? What else is abandoned here? The McDonald's shaped like a UFO? Monster hits the bomb and that sucker goes flying straight into the abandoned house. Monster even tries to field his own bomb and crashes through the house's front door. The boys enter into the house and Chucky seems a little scared. He tries to play it off and retrieve the baseball. He finds the bomb and then jumps when Monster touches his shoulder. I can't say I blame him, people usually jump at the sight of a monster. When Chucky jumps sky high, runs from the house and squirts a deuce in his shorts, Max and Monster laugh and laugh. Chucky wants to prove he's not a coward and goes through the house, Chuck Norrising the doors. The boy is proving he's brave and he even struts through the house in the dark. When something else grabs him, he tries to play it off. When he realizes it's Beaster, round two at dropping a load plays out. Chucky goes screaming from the room and Max thinks he's scared of his shadow. And then Beaster appears and everyone scatters. Beaster blocks the front door and opens a portal to Monsterland, ready to take Monster home. With Beaster closing in, Monster pleads for Max to help him. After these messages, we'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. What are you doing? Saving the future. But how? With Captain Power videotapes. There are three different skill levels. This one's the toughest. Now we can practice anytime with the Power Jet X27. Score or be hit. Captain Power videotapes. I don't believe it. Believe it, large human. The power of the future is in your hands. Batteries not included. Jets, figures, and new interactive videotapes each sold separately from Captain Power and the soldiers of the future. We now return to My Pet Monster. Back from break, the kids are still cornered by Beaster. I would have loved it if the show had picked up post-escape, leaving you to wonder how they did it. Then again, I like weird things like that. I'd watch a whole TV show about the downbeats in the story. Can you imagine all the protocol we'd see on a Star Trek show if we saw the stuff between the adventures? Kirk on an 8-hour bridge shift with nothing happening? And Data watching internal YouTube videos about stand-up comedy. I bet we'd even see Guinan hosting a morning talk show with... Wait, that one exists. And that thing keeps going, even if you say computer in program. 
For the love of God, computer, turn off the view! So Chucky screams for Max to do something. Monster takes the bondage cuffs and tries to get them on Beaster. He manages to get one handcuffed before Monster is hurled at a wall. But it's not enough. Beaster picks up Monster like he's a fluffy stuffed animal and has one foot in the Monsterland portal. Chucky throws the rogue baseball and it bounces off of Beaster and ricochets to the blinds, letting the sunshine in. It blinds Beaster, who drops Monster and makes the getaway possible. Outside, Monster realizes they don't have the cuffs. Without the cuffs, there's no way Monster can pass for normal. That's why they need a Monster Trainer. Every time Monster is disobedient, they need to spray him in the face with a squirt gun. Max and Chucky try to disguise Monster as a dog with a safety pin tail and a sequin studded collar. Keeping him on a short leash, they manage to get a lot of looks from people who aren't buying it. One old lady even screams. It's because he looks sillier than Martha the Neapolitan Mastiff. Go on, look it up. Told you. At one point, the boys are standing in front of a movie poster for The Killer Marshmallow. These are all great sounding 80s horror movies. I want to retroactively write them and produce them when time travel becomes a thing. Though The Killer Marshmallow sounds like a Ghostbusters spinoff. And you know, I'd still watch it. Monster makes his way into the mall and, like, totally scares off all the valley girls. Max and Chucky follow the carnage and find that Jill intercepted the monster and is hiding him in a box. The sister is worried about sneaking Monster back into the house without the cuffs and having Mr. Hinkle see him. So they disguise him a la E.T. and Chucky says he's in love with the cross-dressing monster. Love is love. Back home, Hinkle's using binoculars to spy on Max's house. He knows something's up. Years later, he'll investigate Pizzagate, so... Anyways, over the hedge, the kids and the disguised monster army crawl to keep under Hinkle's radar. But Princess barks because she can smell monster. Monster pops up in Hinkle's sight and the man knocks himself to the ground in fright. Hinkle runs away and Princess crawls under the hedge. Within seconds, she's whining, and Hinkle finds her in a trash can. It pushes Hinkle to call the police. In the treehouse, the gang try to figure out how to get the handcuffs back from Beaster. That's when Max's monster key gets a monster heart on, and they realize they should follow it. I guess we know what they're thinking with. They're long, hard keys. Chucky says that the Beaster Zapper 2.0 is ready. Jill says they have a problem and Hinkle and the Popo are marching up the driveway. I can't wait until they shoot their way out to follow a magic key to find a light-sensitive monster. You know, when I say it like that, I think this show had potential. Jill runs interference with Hinkle and the cops, while Max and Monster escape the treehouse and are on the lam. Out in the park, Beaster is digging a hole in the heat of the day. He's taking off the handcuffs and they're hanging over the hole he's digging. Dig a hole, go ahead, dig a hole, mother monster, dig a hole, bury yourself. Turns out to be part of a trap. Monster hears someone coming and gets out of the hole. He unrolls a poster of home plate, disguising the hole he dug. And Monster's orange cuffs are right over that, acting as bait. Beaster sure is prepared. I wonder if he got his home plate poster printed at the print shop in the Berenstain's Bear Country. On his bike, Max is following the key to the baseball stadium. On Saturday morning, this show will now show kids breaking into a stadium because they need something. 
Is that saying it's okay to break the law as long as you're doing the right thing for your monster? Kind of a mixed message, but it might explain all the breaking and entering I did in the 90s. Monster almost falls into the pit, but Max manages to Admiral Akbar his way into saying, It's a trap! Beaster comes snarling on the scene, wearing his wayfarers to protect him from the sun. When Beaster knocks him off his face, Max opens fire with the light gun and starts to fry the Beaster. It stops working when clouds roll over the sun, as it is solar powered. I know going green is good and all for the environment, but this is exactly the reason why the sun sucks. Even Max says a solar powered flashlight is dumb. The chase is on, with Max riding Monster around all the bases, with Beaster in pursuit. And it's all set to the William Tell Overture, like Max is the frickin' Lone Ranger. Hi-ho, Monster! Beaster is hoisted on his own petard. By that, I mean he falls into his own trap, sliding into the pit. Max cuffs the bully, and it shrinks Beaster down to action figure size. The portal to Monsterland opens, swallows Beaster, and then spits out the handcuffs so this kinky show can continue. The boys celebrate their victory and the day is saved. Outside the stadium, Hinkle is leading the cops on the monster's trail. Max and Chucky appear to ask if Mr. Hinkle is under arrest. When they show Hinkle the docile monster, the noisy neighbor practically has a heart attack. The cops are sympathetic to the nervous breakdown Hinkle is having, and they take him to a nice warm padded room. Max says he feels bad for Hinkle, but not bad enough to prove his neighbor isn't crazy. And then once the cops are gone, they go back into the stadium they illegally entered to play ball. Another great lesson from Saturday morning. The end. After these messages, we'll look at the impact, aftermath, and explore the legacy of My Pet Monster. Oh, here comes crispy critters, a good wholesome bunch. The low sugar cereal with lots of crunch. Yes, it's indubitably. 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 Delicious. Post crispy critter cereal is part of a balanced breakfast. Ha cha cha cha. You can get 20 free animal stickers when you buy marked boxes of post crispy critter cereal. For a bowl full of fun, stick them here and there. Or anywhere. Shifting into gear. Mask. Tracker Sears! Don't race off on my account, Mayhem! Mask, Buzzard, and Goliath. Each sold separately with two figures. Buzzard, convert! Drone, you fly cover. I'm heading upstairs, Nevada. Roger, Matt. Okay, Mayhem. This round's for you. Mask, where illusion is the ultimate weapon. Mask, Goliath, and Buzzard, each sold separately. New from Kenner. Wake up to the hot taste of Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. They're cool, they're so cool. Pop-Tarts popping up, they pop, pop, pop. Tastes so cool inside there. Taste the real fruit, so hot, 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 hot. Real fruit fillings give Pop-Tarts an incredible taste. So hot, they're cool. Was it a phenomenon? It was on its way to being a phenomenon before the show aired. Many a kid of the 80s were familiar with My Pet Monster before they ever saw the cartoon. 
or knew about the live-action movie. The toy came first, but sales did spike after the release of the show. There was a wave of merchandise that hit the stores to support the series. If you didn't know how to swim, there were My Pet Monster Water Wings. Golden Books, one of the producers of the show, released a series of books to capitalize on the stories. There were TV trays, puzzles, coloring books, and activity books. Not to mention small plastic toys for a child who didn't need a plush. Oh, and the Pillow People version of My Pet Monster also came with handcuffs. Of course, the main star in the world of merchandise was the My Pet Monster plush. That model led to My Football Monster and spin-offs Gwonk, Rark, and Wogster. The second wave of plush toys included Yaplet and Yiplet. The plushes came in three sizes, 16, 22, and 26 inches. And most of them came with a Monster Family poster. I cannot find data that tells me how many of these dolls were sold. But they were sold into the 90s, several years after the TV show ended. They were obviously a hit. Whether the other merch sold well or not is debatable. I will tell you this, they were popular. The dolls were a hit from AM Toys and American Greetings. They were a sought-after item and boys delighted in the gross nature of the monster. Grab a My Pet Monster and a Madball or two, also from AM Toys, and you were a popular kid in the neighborhood. But was the show a phenomenon? Not so much. The toys, however, were a huge hit, and yes, a phenomenon in their own right. Sonny Beeson Thrasher would continue to act until the mid-90s and then quietly retire for the most part. He was a part of the cast of the Care Bears TV show, as well as Babar in 1989. His last acting credit is for additional voices on Ultra Force in 1995. But Thrasher found other careers to pursue. He wrote the play The Takeover Clause, which was produced by Open Mind Productions in Toronto at the Annex Theatre. He produced the album Canadian Violin, the first solo album for Prairie Oyster singer John P. Allen. Thrasher's been a composer, a grip, camera operator, assistant director, and even a producer. He's now in his mid-40s and shows no sign of leaving the industry. Whatever he gets into next, we wish him well. Stuart Stone would continue acting in projects like The Raccoons, Swamp Thing, and Babar. He's had a pretty lengthy career right into the present. In the 90s, he stayed busy with voice work and was a regular on the Magic School Bus. After graduating from Thornley Secondary School, he moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting full-time. He became friends with the likes of Devin Sawa and Jamie Kennedy. He even appeared on the MTV reality show, Jamie Kennedy's Blowin' Up, which chronicled the actor's journey to create a rap album. Stone was featured as a rapper on the 2006 show. He would go on to be a songwriter and producer in the music industry. His most recent role was in the 2020 movie, Faking a Murder, which he wrote, produced, starred in, and directed. Allison Court, the former Jill, went on to perform in nearly a hundred projects. She's lent her vocals to TV shows, movies, and video games. 
She's run the gamut in animation, voicing Lydia Dietz on Beetlejuice and Jubilee in the animated X-Men show in the 1990s. On Canadian TV, she spent 10 years as Lunette the Clown on the Big Comfy Couch. While Lunette is a pretty cool name, it doesn't beat my favorite credit of hers. On the show, Miss Persona, she played the character of, get this, Auntie Jam Jam. Court is currently married to comic book creator ZM Thomas. Dan Hennessy would continue on in voice work, working on many, many shows. He was the voice of Alex Murphy, the title character on the 1988 animated show Robocop. Hennessy also landed prominent roles on ALF and ALF Tales as Gordon's nemesis, Egbert Petty. He was on Police Academy the Animated Series as Tackleberry and would appear on Beetlejuice. He found a second career as a voice director and often directed on the projects he voiced. In his later years, he played Father Bear on Little Bear and lent his vocals to several video games. Around 2004, he retired from acting. At the age of 80, we hope he's enjoying retirement and in good health. After My Pet Monster, Colin Fox spent his time ping-ponging between voice work and live-action TV. He was featured on Friday the 13th, the series, no less than three times. He provided additional voices on the 1989 series, Beetlejuice. In the 90s, he was part of the cast of Wildcats, Rupert, and The NeverEnding Story. In the 2000s, he was on Atomic Betty and Bolts and Blip. It appears he stopped working during much of the 2010s. His wife, Carol, passed away in 2015. As of late, Fox has returned to acting and is even slated to appear in the 2022 movie, Deadly Draw. To look at the legacy of My Pet Monster, we have to look at how well it's remembered. And you know what? It's remembered pretty well. In 2001, Toy Max released an updated line of the toy so those in the 80s who missed out could enjoy the fun. In 2009, Kaboom Kids released the series on a two-disc DVD set. If you have not seen it, I recommend it. It's worth delving into 16 episodes to see the idea play out from beginning to end. If you're a fan of the show, maybe you'll hunt down the figure that Funko released, or their more recent action figures. The company Super 7 released two characters under their Reaction Figures lineup. My Football Monster comes as a standard 3 quarter inch figure packaged as an old figure from the 80s. But my personal favorite is their take on Monster, who is packaged in a retro TV with a shattered screen. It gives you the idea that he's trying to break out and take over. In late 2020, online auction house LiveAuctioneers.com sold a mint-in-package My Pet Monster from 1986. Yes, it was packaged as if it was removed from a Toys R Us in 1986 and thrown into a time vortex to arrive here. The doll sold for $375. Not a huge amount of money, but a nice price for a toy that sold for around $25 back in the day. It shows that, if you'd like to own a piece of My Pet Monster, it is affordable. You can also find original animation cells from the series also at a reasonable price. What I realized about My Pet Monster was that it was truly unique. 
The concept of a likable monster passing as a stuffed animal and befriending kids was not a run-of-the-mill story. The concept benefited from the direct-to-VHS movie failing so it could be reworked for Saturday morning. The show is popular in its own time as well. It helped to push more dolls out of the toy store and the show is fondly remembered. Perhaps if it hadn't been up against Muppet Babies and the Smurfs, it might even have had a second season. But that was not to be, and the last new episode aired December 19th, 1987. But you'll always be my monster, monster! Was My Pet Monster a favorite of yours? Do you have a different opinion? Did we stir any memories about the 80s you'd like to share? Listen until the end for our contact information and let us know. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us at this Saturday Morning Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. If you could do us a favor, leave a five-star review wherever you get your episodes. Check out Twitter at SatmornPod for announcements and other cartoony things. We're also on Instagram at SatmornPod, the official source for all the behind-the-scenes stories of the podcast. Got a minute? Check out the Saturday Morning Minute on YouTube. We offer quick looks at all those great 80s shows. And what about you? Do you have any vintage Saturday morning memories? If so, email your story to satmornpod at hotmail.com. We could read it on the next episode. If you'd like to support us so we can make more of these things, find us at patreon.com slash saturdaymorn. You'll find a stockpile of season one bonus content as well as new features added monthly. You'll also have a chance to win behind the scenes prizes as well as being given email priority. La 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 Jill says they have a problem and Hinkle and the Popo are matching. Matching? Well, that's exactly what I wrote. I was going to Ron Burgundy that. Monster almost falls into the pit, but Max manages to Admiral Akbar his way into saying, It's a trap! It's a trap! It's a trap! But Max manages to Admiral Akbar his way into saying, It's a trap! That's a trap. Ma, I got fish face. It's a trap. <laughs> okay. Okay, bye-bye.